probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome back to the Thing Minute Podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from HarperWHarris.com, and joining me again today is... Alexander Morrison, GeekRex.com. Awesome. So thanks for coming back for another day to talk about The Thing. So today we're talking about Minute 57, which uh, begins with Mac leaving the uh, leaving the shack where they've locked up Blair and then uh, ends a minute later with um, Copper saying, we know who isn't human. I thought uh, this is kind of a point in the movie where I mentioned yesterday there's a, a major scene that was in the script that did not get filmed. Um, so I thought we'd kind of start with that a little bit. So basically there's this extended scenes uh, in the script that they ended up not filming really mostly just for budget reasons because it's a it's kind of an action, a big action sequence that it would have ended up costing them way too much and the movie was was running late and over budget already at this point so they they dropped it and you know changed it up a little bit but essentially once mac walks out of the shack he um clark runs up to him and says that the one of the dogs has escaped and is running away so what they uh their plan is to grab a couple of um snowmobiles and chase after this dog so there's this long kind of action sequence of them you know, following the dog, following the dog's tracks for like, I think it's even like a day or two. Like they, it's, they like, you know, it becomes night and day again. And then when they find it, there's this whole sequence where it's, it reads very, very creepy where they kind of walk up to the dog because they, they find it and they walk up to it and it's kind of whimpering. And then when it turns around, they can tell, you know, that it's not, it's not a dog. You know, obviously they know it's not, but, and then uh, there's, uh, there's something like giant, tentacles that come bursting out of the ice and this is actually where uh where bennings got killed originally in the script instead of his whole kind of halfway transformation that we got uh you know about 10 minutes back in the movie so once bennings gets pulled under the ice by the tentacles they can't get back to him and the creature is just so i think they they burn it at that point so they do kill it but they're not able to save bennings and uh mac and childs just hop back on the snowmobile and, and go back to base and it's interesting that that's the moment in the script where they specifically say um, the sun goes down and it and it's not going to come back up like they uh, that it's that's when, you know, the long night sets in for for Antarctica. So it's a pretty interesting scene. It seems it reads very, very eerily. And, and you know, even though it is an action scene, it's very creepy. So it's it's kind of an interesting one. So I always have to wonder what that what that would have done for the movie if that would have been left in. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting, you know. I mean, in the in the last episode, we were talking about how little action there was, mm-hmm. and it actually makes sense to have a scene like that here because, um, uh, you know, this this is you know the few minutes where we really do kick into high gear. But I actually, I actually think that the movie is better for not. Ha- I mean. You know, I'm, the, the the effects are so good and all that that I'm sure it would have been a great scene. But I think that 
the movie is set up and made infinitely creepier by just the fact that they come out. And uh, this is this is the minute where the entire cast has to recognize that they don't know what to do. I think it's Childs who basically says, you know, uh, if there if if there was a, a perfect imitation of me, how would any of us know? And I think that that's actually much much more effectively creepy and fits the the themes of the thing more than um, that scene does, you know, no matter how cool it is. Because uh, it does actually sound really interesting. <laughs> you know, I mean, that is something that I would have loved to have seen filmed as like a deleted scene. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it does sound interesting. And, you know, knowing kind of, uh, you know, Carpenter's experience with doing action sequences like that in, in things like, you know, Escape from New York and, uh, you know, Big Trouble in Little China, like we mentioned, you know, I think that's, that probably would have been a lot of fun and, and pretty interesting. But yeah, it's, um, you know, given that this is the point in the movie where it really becomes more about the paranoia than about, you know, necessarily being a monster movie, although that's obviously still here, too. I think this this little setup of them talking in the snow is is definitely a pretty pretty unsettling um, part of the movie and definitely, uh, you know, transitions it to the next kind of phase pretty well. So, you know, I, I won't say it's it was a good idea to cut that out, but it, I, I, do, I do think it works for the way the movie ended up. So I'm, I won't begrudge it too much. <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's interesting. You know, we've talked about a lot of movies together before on the Geek mm-hmm. Rex podcast, and I think both of us often come down to saying, you know... If you cut 10 minutes off of the action in this movie, it'd probably be a much better movie. And this is probably the 10 minutes of action that they cut out, <laughs> cut out to get a much better movie. You know, like it's um, sometimes the things that you want to do, uh, it's it's best that you don't do them. Sometimes it turns out better when you are forced to do more than more with less. Oh, for sure, and uh, we've we've mentioned that a lot in this uh, in this podcast, and that I think this movie, I think a lot of movies benefit from those kind of limitations and things. But in this movie, there's a, a lot of examples of things where, like, you know, doing it on the cheap or finding a way around a problem actually ended up making the movie much more interesting. Like, you know, for example, that scene with Bennings that you know we touched with that creepy scream. That was yeah. the scene that was you know obviously his death was going to be an entirely different way in the movie, and and the way they ended up doing it, you know, as quickly as possible and in the reshoots kind of phase and, and, you know, with hardly any any real special effects is one of the creepiest scenes in the movie. Like it's one of the most effective and memorable parts of the entire movie. And it was something that they kind of felt like they were forced to do. So, you know, it's that, uh, it's that whole, you know, limitations feed creativity kind of thing. And it it definitely, this movie has loads of examples of, of how that kind of works out in, in its favor. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of these 70s and 80s directors especially are very like that. You know, I mean, there's Carpenter, Wes Craven. When they were given big budgets, they almost always dropped the ball. Mm-hmm. And when they were, for, you know, had their budgets cut and were forced to find workarounds, they were some of the best in the business. Um, a lot of the most iconic horror moments uh, in history came from, you know, Hooper or Craven or Carpenter just saying like, fuck, I, how, how else can I do this? Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, coming from someone who I, I just recently watched um, Life Force. Have you ever seen that? No. Um, so Life Force was, it was a Toby Hooper movie after Poltergeist. Uh, and I think it was actually the last thing that Dan O'Bannon wrote. Um, so, you know, 
just just based on those two, you think it could be something that's really, really cool and interesting, you know, as kind of giants in the horror and sci-fi world that those two are. And it's a huge mess. It's a disaster. It was like a huge budget, and the movie's just kind of all over the place. And, um, you know, it's fun, and it's kind of interesting, but that's that's a perfect counterpoint to this where you don't they – didn't have everything in the world handed to them. And, uh, and you know, it turned out much better for, for that. So, <laughs> yeah. And, well, and I mean, writers have a tendency to leave in the things that they are super excited about, regardless of whether anyone else is, gives a shit about them mm-hmm. and having like being forced to stop and take a look and say, all right, something's got to go what is it going to be has almost unanimous like just almost in any 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 instance i can think of turned out for the better you know i mean i think that thing something like the thing is a good example of why if, if you're interested in writing or in movie making and you have a a script to take a hard look at it and say okay what is the bare minimum that I need to do this well? Because what, you know, I mean, what is it adding if you have this giant, you know, action sequence and, you know, like extra monster effect, you know, like what, what, what does that get you? Yeah, no. And I, I think that's probably a, um, you know, that's partly the case that this is one of the movies that Carpenter did not write or co-write of his own. So, you know, it was written by Bill Lancaster. So maybe, you know, the fact that he wasn't so personally attached to it also gave him the ability to, to feel a little, you know, uh, it made it easier for him to kind of make these changes. Cause you know, the, the, the central kind of feel and tone and the characters are almost exactly the same in the script, but Carpenter changed a lot of the kind of the ordering of a lot of stuff around this part of the movie and, and cut a few scenes out and changed one or two deaths to kind of, you know, fit his kind of vision and, and the pacing a little better. And yeah, maybe it's just cause he wasn't quite so attached. So yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I'd say if, if you're a huge fan of the movie, um, you know, anybody listening, it's, it's definitely worth reading the screenplay and kind of checking it out. And, you know, it'd be interesting to see kind of a case study of how, you know, how Carpenter changed it. And, and there's uh there's some interesting articles online about, about, kind of the last minute changes that Carpenter made and how, how important those are to the the movie that we all, you know, kind of know and love now. So it's definitely an interesting um, case study of that. And if, if you're really interested in that kind of thing, like the evolution of something from script to screen, um, check out a Steven Soderbergh movie called The Limey. Have you ever seen this one, Harper? I have a long, long time ago. I don't remember it that well. Now, the movie itself is a, it's a good movie. It's a crime thriller. And, you know, I mean, Soderbergh, Soderbergh's good. He's Mm -hmm. made maybe two bad movies in his career. And um, he's made a lot of movies. Yeah. The thing about the Limey that's special, and the reason that I tell everyone to check it out is the commentary track. Have you listened? Did you listen to that? No, I haven't. The commentary track, which you can find on YouTube and sync up to the movie, because I think the commentary is out of print is Steven Soderbergh and the writer of the film, who I think is like a Lem Dobbs. I don't remember exactly, but the two of them talking and, you know, like the writer will just occasionally say, 
well, here's where this was supposed to happen. And, you know, honestly, I think it would have been a better movie if it had. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes just other people take things out of your control and you just have to watch helplessly. And the two of them kind of snipe back and forth, but in such a way that tells you a ton about the evolution of a movie from script to screen. That's really cool. I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah, it's, it's been years and years since I've seen that movie, and I, I, I had never heard that about the commentary. I've, I've, I've heard a few stories about you know movie commentaries where the people who are on it don't get along and have some bitterness about the movie they're talking about, which seems like something you'd probably want to figure out before you schedule a commentary recording session. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, that, that sounds really fascinating. I'm going to have to check that out. And, you know, having started this podcast and, and been analyzing something like this, this closely, I, I'm definitely more interested in that than I probably would have been before. So yeah, that sounds cool. Yeah. Let's see. I need flares, a parka, kerosene, dog food, Wow, who knew moving to an Antarctic base would be so expensive? And I haven't even started looking for roller skates and giant hats yet. It's a good thing I'm using Amazon so I can get the best price and get this stuff fast. And since I'm using thethingminute.com slash Amazon, a small portion of my purchase goes to help The Thing Minute to help support the podcast. Now if I can just get some of the listeners to use thethingminute.com slash Amazon, I might just be able to afford that flamethrower. Yeah, so we mentioned in this minute we get Childs has a really kind of important line from the movie where he says, you know, if I was an imitation, a perfect imitation, how would you know it wasn't me? And it's, that's a, it's a powerful line because it is just a piece of dialogue that perfectly explains why we should be afraid and why we should not, you know, Blair just told us not to trust that we don't know who to trust, but that's a, it's just like, Oh, okay. Now I understand that. Yeah. It's not like there's a monster, you know, hiding around the corner and, or even that there's a, a serial killer in our midst. It's like, there's somebody here who is not even a human being and we have no idea how to tell, you know, who that is. And, uh, you know, the fact that he uses himself as an example too, and not like, you know, somebody else makes it for some reason to me, makes it even creepier. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's because I think that's the last time over like in this movie that any of them would be even sort of willing to intimate that they might be the thing. Right. Because this is, this is when they realize kind of the, the mon- like how big their challenge is. And, you know, I mean, the, it, it struck me and, you know, Keith David reads it almost blase, but then as soon as he says it, there's like a moment of silence where they're like, Oh shit. <laughs> so the, you know, this is, this is kind of the, um, the moment where from from here on out, I don't think that there is a relaxed moment in the movie, basically. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And yeah, I love that kind of that kind of pause after he says that when you do that that pan across everybody's face where it is like it's like we're getting a view of everybody kind of checking everybody else out. Like, uh, do I see something that's a little amiss? Like is, you know, is somebody's uh, mouth not where it should be or something, <laughs> you know, where, you, you know, he's, he's talking about how, you know, somebody would be a perfect imitation. So you get that very much kind of nervous, paranoid glance around the people around you. I love that shot. And I love that this minute really that doesn't have any music under it either, that we're, we just kind of have that howl of the wind while they kind of realize you know, how fucked they are. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, they go into problem solving mode immediately after that silence right. where, where, you know, like, well, doc, is there anything? And that does set up kind of the movie's most famous. And I think best scene, although that doesn't happen for like another 30 minutes, I think yeah. <laughs> so it's an early, early set up, but 
it is also just uh yeah that the silence the pan across their faces is so easy to miss it's such a quiet subtle thing and it's not even something that i think would really be in a script because it's it's camera it's direction it's camera right. movement but that is just a, one of those moments where carpenter just nails it and there's there's almost like the movie can be broken down into before that silence and after that silence and you know as soon as it's after like they're trying to stick stick together but they turn on each other almost immediately mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we definitely get to that a little later this week where, where that paranoia gets violent, like, almost immediately. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think that that little, you know, two-second panning shot is definitely a major turning point and, and kind of divides the movie in half for sure. So, yeah, so they t- start talking about this blood test, which, you know, we know as fans of the movie does lead to kind of this incredible scene later. But um, I thought it was interesting that, you know, the blood test that we get in the movie is very different from the one that Copper suggests here, where he basically just says, you just get, you know, blood that we know is not contaminated, and then we mix it with somebody else's blood. And if there's some kind of some kind of reaction, then we know that it's, uh, you know, that there's something wrong. So, which is kind of interesting because that's actually exactly the way the test goes in the novella. That's what they want to do in the novella is, is a blood serum test specifically, not this like attack the blood test that McCready comes up with later. So that part is just another spot where it's kind of amazing to me how true this movie that came out in 1982 is to a short story that came out in the 30s and how, you know, how the science in that that short story works, like, you know, holds up surprisingly well, um, you know, in, in fiction terms. Um, <laughs> it's like, yeah. I always kind of love that. You know, I mean, the the serum test, or the not the serum test, but the test is great. But just the suggestion, um, I think one of the things that I find interesting is the what he suggests, the, you know, you know take the blood and... Um, you know, apply the, you know, potentially alien blood and see if there's anything that happens. That's exactly what the computer simulation that Blair ran was. Mm -hmm. That's Um, true. And it drove Blair insane to, you know, realize like, oh, yeah, this is, (laughs) we're hopeless. Yeah. (laughs) We're we're, we're screwed. I'm, I'm leaving, I'm stranding us. (laughs) Yeah, Um, that's true. So you had to wonder what kind of effect that would have had if they'd been able to do the blood test. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, it is it is incredible to see a movie that kind of it breaks a lot of rules of pacing that you are told as a writer. But uh, yeah, this this is almost where like the first act ends in a, in a, in a sort of way. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's just bizarre, but it's uh, it's incredible. And yeah, the movie from here on out is basically nonstop tension. So I guess everyone everyone enjoy the minute minute fifty seven uh, <laughs> your, your last time to uh, to breathe easy. Yeah, before it becomes the uh, the Mad Max Fury Road of horror movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, I, I did want to mention I I like that uh, this is the first point where it, you know blood gets brought up in in particular too, where they start to talk about it, and blood becomes very important later in the movie and. I think that uh, this is one of those points too, where it the the kind of uh, AIDS crisis metaphor that you know you can definitely read into this movie starts to play in in that sense too, where you know wh- when that was happening and uh, you know 
when people were kind of ignorant of how it worked, everybody was kind of terrified of how you could catch it from somebody else. So, you know, somebody who, who was HIV positive and, you know, their blood was something to be terrified of, if, you know, if you were, didn't know what was going on and, and, you know, were maybe a little ignorant about it. But, you know, so I thought, think this, this is kind of one of those points, too, that points in that direction, too. And that's something that, you know, the, when I first saw this movie, you know, when I was probably in high school, it, I did, it never even crossed my mind to make those kind of connections. But watching it with that in mind, the movie is a really powerful metaphor for that kind of thing. And that sort of paranoia as well as, you know, the kind of, you know, just 80s paranoia that was also, uh, you know, built into it by nature, too. That's true. And, you know, I, I had never heard that reading before. I think it's really interesting, um, especially given the all-male setting. Mm-hmm. But, um, of course, that, that, gives the, that gives the end of the movie a very dark connotation. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, although then, uh, then again, I guess, you know, that, that also gives the, the ending of the movie, you know, where uh, two guys are so terrified that either of them might have, you know, uh, have, uh, the thing that they are willing to kill themselves rather than let them, you know, like rather than risk, you know, the other person, you know, Mm -hmm. being, being honest and, you know, being themselves. So, you know, I mean, I guess, I guess it, it, it is still fair grounds for critique and it still, still holds up to that metaphor. So that's really, that's a really interesting reading. Yeah, that's, um, you know, it's funny, the the way you phrased that a second ago made me think of like, you could probably make, there there probably is one in stock footage somewhere of like a, um, you know, a PSA movie about, about AIDS where they, where they just call it the thing where they're like, he's got the thing. Like <laughs> I could, I could totally see that being like a, you know, in fifties in uh, PSA form. So maybe that's uh that kind of works too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Cool. So, um, yeah, so this this minute really, like you said, is kind of a turning point. It's where they start uh, they they start to believe that maybe they can't uh, trust anybody, and that you know, as much as they want to survive, that they don't uh, they don't know how to combat this thing anymore. So uh, I think that's that's pretty much all I had for for minute fifty seven. Do you have anything else you wanted to mention? If you want to see kind of a different take on that kind of moment of silence that the entire movie turns on trope, because it's really rare to have an entire film pivot on a single moment like this. Mm -hmm. My personal favorite, uh, after the thing, uh, which is, you know, all time favorite movie. My, my favorite kind of next example is, uh, it's called the loneliest planet. Have you ever heard of it? No, I don't think so. I think that's what it's called. Yeah. The loneliest planet by, uh, directed by Julia Lochtev. And it is a, uh, it's an indie drama. It's very slow paced. So, I mean, you know, this is not going to appeal to all horror fans, obviously. (laughs) But um, the premise of the movie is uh, this, you know, very loving husband-wife couple goes backpacking through um, Georgia, uh, the country, not the state. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. something happens that fundamentally changes their relationship about halfway through. And so the movie is basically... Uh, then almost the whole movie is their hike. And it is another movie where you just have this one wordless moment and the entire movie flips on its head in a really fascinating way. So anyone who's interested in kind of more of a, uh, uh, seeing a different way that this could play out, uh, definitely check out The Loneliest Planet. I definitely will. That sounds really interesting. It sounds up my alley. 
Cool. So yeah, you've you've got some some good recommendations with with this episode that uh you know most we've we've we always end up talking about the same horror movies when uh we do these podcasts. We you know it follows comes up a lot and you know we talk about other Carpenter movies. So I'm glad to be recommending some <laughs> you know a crime movie and an indie drama. That's awesome. That's uh you know that's that's cool because. Not not necessarily saying this movie had an influence on on those, but uh, you know, it's it's certainly a, an important movie and and one that you can kind of apply the same sort of uh, thinking about to other other interesting, very different kinds of movies. So, yeah, so definitely check those out. We'll have we'll have links to those up on the website uh, for this episode for sure. Cool. So um, I think that'll wrap up minute fifty seven of the thing. But uh, don't forget that you can always check us out on Facebook and Twitter at The Thing Minute on both of those. Um, so you can, you know, join in the conversation there. You know, give us your theories about what's going on, or you know, if there's anything we missed, you can bring that up there as well, and just kind of, you know, start the conversation. So don't forget to do that. But uh, always make sure you come back tomorrow for another episode of The Thing Minute. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Thing Minute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper, signing out.